tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boostbytaxday to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. If you follow the news, you'll hear a story about cancer, what seems like every single day. Processed meats cause cancer, and red meat probably does too. An important new alert about the safety of cell phones and the possible risk of cancer. It's really confusing, especially if you're like me, and you want to live the best you for many years to come. Johnson & Johnson has lost yet another multi-million dollar lawsuit, which claims an ingredient in its popular baby talcum powder causes cancer. What about the one drink that Americans love? Coffee consumption has never been higher in the United States since they started taking this survey back in 1950. The Council for Education and Research on Toxics wants businesses to warn consumers about a possible cancer risk from coffee. That's right, coffee. In fact, 62% of us have at least one cup of coffee every single day. But there is word tonight that even as little as one cup of coffee, even decaf coffee, could have powerful health benefits. And it's not just coffee. Have you ever heard of the French paradox? It's a well-researched phenomenon that refers to people who live in certain parts of France where red wine is commonly consumed during meals. Drinking alcohol, in what many people think is moderation, increases the risk of cancer, according to a new scientific paper. The French have fewer causes of death because of the theory that says red wine boosts heart health, improves cholesterol, manages diabetes, fights obesity, and fights free radical damage. In other words, the accumulation of free radicals plays a major role in the development of chronic and degenerative diseases, including cancer. If the promise holds true, I think this has the chance to change healthcare. He's talking about resveratrol, a substance found in red wine that concentrated in the form of a simple pill could significantly extend life. Okay, just admit it. Whenever you get this weird symptom, what do you do? Mm, I do it too. You run to the bar. I feel awesome! No, not the local bar. You run to the search bar. You sit there on Google, on Bing, on Yahoo, and you type in all your symptoms, and then suddenly it comes back. Yes, the results. Do you have the dengue fever? Do you just have the flu? Or do you have cancer? Those search results can often be good, but a lot of them are totally bogus. And those search results can't tell you if you are inclined to get cancer. And those search results should certainly never lead you to believe that you suddenly have cancer. You have to consider the whole package. You are unique. Nobody else has your DNA. Nobody else has your bloodline, your lineage, your genetic predisposition. You see, medicine is a very specific science and only top-notch professionals are trained to track all this stuff down. But listen up, because with today's amazing technology, you don't have to wait around until you actually have symptoms. You can take action by ambushing cancer long before it happens. 
And I'm going to tell you something. The more I learn about this technology, the more amazing it is. You see, cancer detection is not what it used to be. It's not something that we should be afraid of anymore. Having cancer does not mean that it's a death sentence. But cancer detection goes hand in hand with, you know, prevention. They're totally partners now. And the more you know about your body, the more knowledge you have about how to keep it cancer-free. And like I always say, knowledge is power. And today's knowledge comes from Dr. David Fogelman. Let me tell you, this guy's amazing. He's one of the top medical oncologists at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. David graduated from Cornell University and the Albert Einstein College of Medicine at Yeshiva University in 1998. He's focused on ovarian cancer, leukemia, lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, and colon cancer. He's been published dozens of times for his work in cancer research and treatment. And let me tell you a little bit about where Dr. Fogelman works. MD Anderson Medical Center was ranked number one in cancer care in the United States by U.S. News & World Report. They are on a mission to end cancer with this comprehensive and ambitious plans for all their patients. The bottom line, it's totally the go-to place for anyone battling this awful disease. And when you start researching cancer, you start running into technology, which makes total sense because Dr. Fogelman and I actually have a lot in common. He explained to me at one point in his life that he wanted to study computers. He wanted to get into programming. And then it totally hit him at two o'clock in the morning, sitting in the basement of a Cornell University computer lab, that this was going to be his life. Which, of course, I could totally relate because studying computers at Arizona State University, I had the similar experience of sitting in the ASU computer labs at two o'clock in the morning, waiting for my computer programs to compile and to see if they would work. Dr. Fogelman went on to be a doctor. Well, I went on to be a talk show host. So knowing Dr. Fogelman's love of technology and his immense experience and research in cancer diagnostics and clinical trials that are being developed behind the scenes, I knew that he would be in love with something called, are you ready? Nanorobots. So stay right where you are because you are gonna wanna know about this incredible microscopic world of genetics, angiogenesis, yes, that's a big word, and nanorobots. Have you ever spoken to someone who said, yeah, my great-grandfather drank a fifth of whiskey a day, smoked like a chimney, ate bacon and coffee every day for breakfast. And wow, he lived to be 92. My grandmother was actually like that. She loved her Pall Malls. Oh my gosh. Filterless cigarettes. Loved her coffee and loved her Pabst Blue Ribbon. Granny lived to be 84 years old. But getting back to the great-grandfather, maybe he drank that fifth of whiskey because he did have a tumor the size of a baseball and he decided to ride out the pain until it actually killed him. We'll never really know because back then they didn't have the super accurate cancer detection tools like we do today. Something else we didn't know back then. What exactly causes cancer? And are certain people more likely to get it than others? Now, I don't mean to shock you, but yes, certain people are more likely to get cancer based on their genetics alone. And this is a definite cause for alarm. 
Over 609,000 Americans are expected to die of cancer this year. That's according to the American Cancer Society. If we do the math, that's about 1,600 deaths every single day. Cancer is the second most common cause of death here in the United States. It's exceeded only by heart disease. I'm so thrilled to have Dr. Fogelman with us on this podcast. You are going to learn just a slew of things, I guarantee you. Do we know yet what actually causes cancer? We know that people who smoke are much more likely to get cancer than those who don't. We know that people who have certain genetic aberrations, there's mutations of genes like BRCA, and folks who carry various genetic mutations are also at risk of getting cancer. Let's dive into the gene thing the genetic mutations. We know that people who at baseline harbor a potentially pathogenic mutation, in general, they are much more likely to get cancer. I'll give you an example. We've been following with keen interest uh, research into a couple of genes, one called BRCA1, the other called BRCA2. Now, this is something that has been ongoing since the 1990s. And what we have come to appreciate is that people who carry a BRCA, let's say a BRCA1 mutation, they actually have an 80% likelihood of eventually getting breast cancer sometime during their life. And they also have a 60% likelihood of developing an ovarian cancer Mm -hmm. at some point in their life. Folks with BRCA2 mutations also get pancreatic cancer, so it's become very relevant for my area of research. Uh, They also develop prostate cancer. So we're coming to appreciate that people who harbor an underlying inheritable genetic mutation are often at increased risk. Now, just forgive me for asking a simple question. When it comes to broadcasting, radio, digital advertising, tech devices, well, I'm definitely your go-to gal. And if there is any such thing as an internet medical degree, I think I probably would already have one. But you are the expert, David, and we are the layman. So is there any way you can change that genetic mutation cancer contraction rate? Or are we just stuck with the odds? We're looking at better screening for these patients. You know, there are screening guidelines for people who have BRCA mutations. And there's also this discussion of what's called chemo prevention. So chemo prevention is the idea of taking a medicine of some kind in the hope of stopping cancers from forming. Now, so far, that's not in use. It's still, that's something that is at this point theoretical. But there are medicines. There's uh, particularly a class of drugs called PARP inhibitors, which are particularly useful for folks who have BRCA mutations. And why would that work for people with genetic mutations? People who have BRCA mutations have a defect in their ability to repair DNA. BRCA is part of the set of proteins that help with a DNA repair process called homologous recombination. So if you are missing a BRCA gene, you may have a defect in repairing DNA through this particular pathway. But there are medicines, there's particularly a class of drugs called PARP inhibitors, which are particularly useful for folks who have BRCA mutations. Here's how this works. PARP inhibitors act by stopping the PARP pathway from repairing DNA. So think about this. If you are a cancer cell, and you know cancer cells are known to pick up mutations, they grow rapidly and they are known to you know, pick up mutations fairly rapidly. If your homologous recombination pathway is defective because genetically that's who you are, and if you are relying on the other pathway, the PARP pathway to repair DNA damage, 
and then someone comes along and takes a PARP inhibitor and blocks that DNA repair, you get what's called synthetic lethality. In other words, the cancer cell has no way now to repair the DNA and mutations build up and the cell often dies out. And in fact, these PARP inhibitors are now, at least some of them, are approved for treatment of patients with ovarian cancer and breast cancer who happen to carry that BRCA mutation. And we actually have a couple of studies ongoing right now. One of them is a national trial called the POLO study. The POLO study takes folks who have a known BRCA mutation where they have a response to their initial chemotherapy and then we say, okay, the tumor's smaller, people can't take chemotherapy forever, it, it's, uh, you know, it's very toxic, it causes a lot of side effects, whereas the PARP inhibitors as a group tend to be much more mild. And we tell them, okay, uh, Mr. Jones, your tumor has responded to the chemotherapy, congratulations. We could keep going with the chemo, your side effects will build up, or we could try switching you to a pill, which might be this PARP inhibitor, and that might be a way to control your cancer without actually needing the chemo. And once the study is finished and once we see the results, we'll know whether or not the strategy is effective. Now that's for people who actually have cancers. The theory then is if this is effective, can someone who has a BRCA mutation uh, take a PARP inhibitor in the hope that if a cancer does form, then the idea being that the PARP inhibitor would basically kill it just as it's forming. Listen, I get my whole complete blood labs at least once a year. The complete panel, you know, heart, liver, cholesterol, but it doesn't tell me if I have the BRCA gene or any other genetic mutation. How can I find out if maybe I have it? The way it works is you send either a saliva sample or a tube of blood which has white blood cells which have healthy DNA and they can actually look at your DNA and tell you yes your DNA sequence is normal or we know that there are certain BRCA mutations for instance are seen in Ashkenazi Jews for instance and they can actually sequence the DNA and they can tell you whether or not your DNA has one of the mutations. Let's say that I have the mutation. Okay, my husband Barry says I'm already part mutant, but that's a totally different podcast. Uh, seriously, let's just say that I have the gene. What should be my next steps? If they do find a mutation, uh, of course they let you know, and they will also test your family members at a discounted rate to see if your other family members also have that particular mutation. Now I can tell you, some people, especially my tech-savvy listeners, are really concerned about their privacy. They may not want their test results to be on the public record. What about their privacy? Can you unpack that idea just a little bit for us? As you know, medical records are supposed to be private. You know, the HIPAA Act protects medical information in certain contexts. There is the 2008 Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, which protects genetic test results in the absence of symptoms. But the reality is they don't necessarily prevent discrimination in other realms, like life insurance disability. That's good to know. And I'm going to talk more about the HIPAA laws at the end of this podcast, because it's really important. But getting back to testing, who exactly should have it done? For instance, I know an Ashkenazi Jewish woman has a greater chance of carrying the BRCA2 gene, so she should probably get tested, right? On the topic of who should get tested, the likelihood of someone in the general population having a BRCA mutation, assuming that there's no history of cancer in the family, is actually not very high. It's only on the order of 1 in 400 to 1 in 800 people. So when we talk about genetic testing, unless you really try to do at least a little bit of a job picking and choosing who should be tested, you're going to have a lot of people getting tested and having negative results. The other caveat is when you do have a positive result, 
first, don't freak out. Don't panic. Go talk to someone. That's right. You actually want to speak to a human being. It's great advice. Just don't sit there on Google it all night. You want to speak to an expert, somebody who really knows what they're talking about. And I know that MD Anderson offers pre- and post-testing counseling. Can you sort of walk us a little bit through how this process works? For folks here at MD Anderson whose family history suggests that maybe they have a genetic mutation, uh, specifically those people who develop their cancers relatively young, patients who have uh, many other people in their family who've had cancer, we have a wonderful genetic counseling group here at the hospital. And our genetic counselors will actually sit down. They will take a very extensive family history, going back generations, looking to see you know, who had cancer, who might have had cancer. And they really try to tease out, you know, just based on their family history, what's happened in their family and whether or not they are at higher risk of developing cancer. And if they are, they will recommend appropriate testing and they will steer the patient and they will tell the patient, okay, look, you have X percent risk of having a BRCA mutation. And if you have that, if we find it, then here are the ramifications. So the genetic counselors are invaluable. I just want to emphasize that they are so knowledgeable and they really do a wonderful job educating people. And just because I have the gene, that doesn't mean that I have cancer. No, and that's just it. You know, just because there is a risk factor for cancer does not mean that you are going to get cancer necessarily, but it does mean that the chance may be higher. You know, we know what some of these are. We know that, you know, with certain gene mutations that people are prone to getting various cancers. We know that with smoking, people are prone to getting various cancers. But there are people who smoke their whole lives who don't get cancer. They get hit by a bus at the age of 90. Then there are plenty of folks who don't smoke who do get cancer anyway. And I can tell you that I have lots of patients who come in and they tell me, gee, doc, I don't understand it. I've lived so well my whole life. I've eaten healthy. I've kept my cholesterol down. I'm not obese. I've exercised. How is it that I got cancer? There's still an element of luck. But the fact is, if you stay healthy, you're actually going to be in a better position to fight off cancer if and when it ever does come. I get it. And that's where the preventative measures come in. Some of it we can do on our own, and some of it they're still developing. I think I'm starting to understand the flowchart now, the step-by-step methodology. We're all in this fight together. So I guess the question is, are we winning? Are we getting any closer? When I graduated from medical school, the average lifespan of someone with colorectal cancer was about six months. Now, since I graduated, uh, we've had new drugs. And nowadays, the average survival for people with metastatic colon cancer has increased from six months to almost three years. We're making slow progress. We're getting there. But it's going to take it's going to take years. But that's why many of us are here, and that's why many of us you know, are working at this as fast as we can. So let's move to the preventative side. I know that you're learning more about cancer prophylactics, or vaccines as they're being called. I just read about one that actually eliminates tumors on mice. That's really exciting stuff. So is this something that at some point we can look forward to, that it's actually going to be there? There was an article recently where they looked at a vaccine that stimulates the immune system in mice to kill cancer cells. And in mice, it works pretty well. The idea behind a vaccine in general is that it is there to elicit an immune reaction. It's there to get your immune system to fight whatever it is that we're trying to get your immune system to fight. This particular work in mice is very promising. We're optimistic. Take it with a grain of salt, though. 
when you go from mice to humans, there's really a world of difference. That's a huge difference. So what's the basic premise of the vaccine research? You're trying to stimulate your immune system to fight the cancer. And we actually have a study, which we're getting towards the end of now, where we've actually tried taking people's tumors. We've tried to make vaccines from them in an effort to stimulate the immune system. And we are giving our patients back the vaccine that came from them in combination with one of these immunotherapies. We're at a point in the study where we're not taking new patients. We're looking to see how effective it is in the patients where we have made the vaccine. Okay, up to this point, I feel like we've covered the foundation of what we wanted to talk about today. But as you know, I'm really interested in new technology. And MD Anderson is breaking ground with some promising new tech for cancer patients and also those nanorobots. All that is next. We're speaking with Dr. David Fogelman. He's a leading oncologist and researcher at MD Anderson in Houston, Texas. And we've been talking about promising new technology for cancer patients. One thing that's happened is we have much better imaging technology. So right now, our CAT scanners have gotten to the point where we can detect millimeter size changes in a tumor. And we are really getting a very good look at what's happening with these cancers. But what's also happening is we're also developing biomarkers, ways of measuring if a cancer is present other than just by doing the CT scan. Often these are blood tests. Uh, certain tumors are known to excrete certain proteins. For example, pancreatic cancer often puts out a protein called CA199. A newer one is we are actually starting to develop exosomes as a means of assessing how much cancer someone has. Exosomes are little blebs that come off a cancer cell, and they often have cancer cell DNA inside of it. And we've actually got ongoing research here where we are looking to see whether or not the presence, and not just the presence of, but the quantity of these exosomes may be a useful marker for improvement of these cancers as people go through their treatments. So that's actually work that's in progress right now. That's actually something that some of my colleagues here at MD Anderson are doing. So you're really able to monitor cancer progression or regression at a whole new level. But what I'm really excited about are the nanorobots. They're like something out of a science fiction movie. And I'm not going to steal your thunder, David, but go ahead and introduce us to the bots. Okay, so here's how this goes. The nanorobots are actually little sheets of DNA. And what happens is, think of it as like a sheet of paper. On the inside of the paper, they basically have Velcro. And what they do is they take this molecule called thrombin. So thrombin is the payload. And the, the DNA sheet is the delivery system. And what they do is they take the thrombin and they put a piece of Velcro on the thrombin. They have a piece of Velcro you know, on the inside of the little DNA sheet. And once that's there, they wrap it up into essentially a cylinder, a tube. And that's what gets injected into the patient, or in this case, into the mice. And what they did was they put a, basically a delivery system on it, kind of like a lock and key model, where the little nano robot would unfold and release the thrombin once it encountered the key, which is a protein called nucleolin. And this protein, the key, is actually located predominantly on the blood vessels of cancer cells or near cancer cells. Think incredible journey for a protein. It sounds like researchers are really zeroing in on just the cancer. That's gotta be difficult. It's like trying to develop a cleaner that only picks up one certain kind of germ. So the rhombin in the nanorobot, is that injected directly into the tumor? 
Well, so what happens is you, they don't deliver it directly into the tumor. They deliver it into a vein in the mouse, and the vein is part of the bloodstream, and the little nanorobots would circulate in the bloodstream. And, but it wouldn't do anything until it came across one of those keys, the nucleolin. But once it found one of those keys, that's how it knew it was in the right place. Once it found one of those keys, it would open up, the thrombin would come out. Thrombin actually starts, it triggers the process of forming a blood clot. A blood clot. Um, explain how that works. We all walk around with a protein in our bloodstream called fibrinogen. And when we hurt ourselves, we cut our skin, we start a cascade of proteins, which end up coagulating our blood. The last of which is this fibrinogen. The thrombin comes along. Basically, it's, it's like a knife. It cuts off a piece of the fibrinogen and you get left with fibrin, and that's what forms your blood clot. That the, your blood clot is actually fibrin. And so what happens here is the thrombin is targeted to where the cancer is by this nucleolin, and once it's there, the thrombin then turns the fibrinogen into fibrin, and it forms a blood clot right in the artery or vein or capillary that's feeding the tumor. And so we're basically creating blood clots right where the tumor is. Okay, I think I get this. So you're actually cutting off the blood supply that's feeding the tumor. Correct. And we know that by doing that, we impair and hopefully even cause the cancer to die out. Now, this is not new. This is an idea that's been around since the 1970s. There was a doctor died about a decade ago named Judah Folkman, and the Folkman hypothesis is that cancer cells need blood vessels in order to grow and spread. And really, as a result of his research, we've actually had drugs come along that target proteins that manufacture new blood vessels. And so what we're doing here, this is a a newer approach where instead of having the protein go everywhere and act everywhere, in this case, they're targeting it specifically for where the tumor is. And so hopefully we would see an effect on the tumor and really not much effect on the patient themselves otherwise. So, and this is really important, keeping the healthy cells healthy. Correct. And, you know, one of the reasons that people get side effects from medications is that those medications act where we don't want them acting. But the idea here is that if we're targeting specifically the blood vessels where the cancer is, hopefully we don't get those side effects. That would be awesome. So, you know, I'm kind of curious on why nanorobots aren't being used to treat humans. You know, one thing that we haven't discussed is that in order to have a clinical trial, you have to have enough of these nanorobots to do it. And I don't know what the manufacturing process is like. I don't know how cumbersome it is to create these things. And although they can certainly obviously generate enough to test it in mice, scaling up production to do a large-scale clinical trial in humans may be something that, you know, just takes longer to do. What's it going to take to convince the powers that be that this is worth investing more money and more effort into? I mean, I'd like to see this really take off. Here's what we need to demonstrate in humans to show that this works. So number one, we need to demonstrate that once we give humans the same nanorobot with the DNA and the thrombin on the inside, first we need to make sure that the nanorobot is getting to the tumor. And one of the issues with human tumors is that often there's so much scar in there, there's so much stuff in there that there's a lot of pressure keeping drugs out. And so one issue is we need to make sure that the actual nanorobot can actually get to the tumor. Number two, we need to make sure that, as we have seen in in the mice, we need to make sure that once the nanorobot gets to the tumor, that the nucleolin is going to do the same good job of acting as a key to open up the nanorobot and letting the thrombin out into the blood vessel. 
one potential mechanism of resistance might be if the nucleolin either isn't there, or maybe it's you know, structured a bit differently, and maybe it doesn't do the job of opening up the nanorobot. So that's one thing that we also have to show. And then thirdly, you know, even if that happens, even if the nanorobot gets to the tumor, even if the thrombin is released to, you know, to form the fibrin, we then still have to actually show that you block enough blood vessels that you deprive the tumor of enough oxygen, of enough blood to actually be able to stop it. And that's the trick. So you're back to that abyss that separates mice from humans. Actually, I think it was Dr. Folkman the one said that if you have cancer and if you're a mouse, we can take very good care of you. But what often happens is things that work well in mice don't necessarily work as well in humans. That's what the clinical trial is all about. Are there any of these trials going on right now in the United States? I went on Google, I admit it, and I couldn't find any in my research. Right now, I don't know that there's actually a trial in the United States up and running. While I'm looking forward to seeing a clinical trial you know, of these nanorobots, I would certainly happily refer patients to such a trial. Uh, you know, I, when people listen to your podcast, I, I don't want to send them off on a wild goose chase, you know, looking for trials that haven't opened yet. Yeah, I understand. I think we're all a little anxious for some new options because with cancer, time is always of the essence. I'm just grateful that you and the oncology staff at MD Anderson are working around the clock. I mean, really pushing that envelope in diagnostics and treatment. Hey, David, thanks for joining us and uh, keep up the great work. Hey, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. We have all this amazing technology that will literally zero in and stop a cancer sneak attack. But you know what really stumps me? With all this tech, some people still won't go to the doctor. I mean, I get it, it's their choice. And once they make that choice not to get tested, they still insist on worrying about it. I mean, the stress of worry alone can kill you. Let's deal with the facts. Let's be smart about it. Only a professional screening will reveal if you have a predisposition. Only a professional screening will give you the genetic knowledge that you need to lower your risk. Only a professional screening will give you an accurate answer and put your mind maybe a little bit at ease. Sitting there on Google all night is certainly not gonna do it. The amount of information extracted from a DNA sample goes way beyond whether you have cancer or not. It's pretty amazing what they can find about you from just a DNA sample, just you spitting in a tube. And I get it, not everybody wants that information to be made public, but here's the deal, you have to do your research. As you know, I am not a big fan of blind trust. But let's talk a little bit about the HIPAA rule. If you wanna read the whole enchilada, online there's a law firm by the name of Foley and Lardner. They have a great PDF you can download for free. As a matter of fact, you can find it over at foley.com. That's F-O-L-E-Y.com. A big thank you goes out to Dr. David Fogelman again for sharing his knowledge. And if you want to know which testing labs MD Anderson recommends or what clinical trials are available, of course, you can call them or you can fill out their online form over at mdanderson.org. I'm America's Digital Pro, Kim Commando. Hey, thanks for listening. And by the way, so many people have asked me, this is not the Kim Commando Show radio show podcast. To find my show nearest you, head over to commando.com slash radio. And if you want to watch or listen to my show anytime on your schedule, go behind the scenes, watch the show being recorded, use our message boards, be part of the community, head over to getkim.com. Once again, that's getkim.com. And I'll see you next time. 
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.